This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of the first purge. At the siren, all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 hours. Your government thanks you for your participation. Welcome, folks, to a very special midweek episode of Trapo. Think of it as the old McDLT from McDonald's. The hot side on one, the hot on one side, the cool on the other. We're going to start off with a dissection of the last two Purge films, a sort of a resurrection of Frost Christman with me, Amber, and Amber's friend, Cal. Hi, Cal. Hi. And then for the second half of the episode, uh, for you people who love your vegetables, Amber will be talking to Aaron Leonard, the author of A Threat of the First Magnitude, FBI Counterintelligence and Infiltration from the Communist Party to the Revolutionary Union, 1962 to 1974. But first, let's talk about the motherfucking purge. Okay, so should we do the will thing and talk about our viewing experience? Uh, well, we didn't see them together, but yeah, right. you, it sounded like yours was pretty good. Yeah. Well, this I saw is it for with the Powell. most recent well, the purge, latest correct. purge we saw together. Yeah, with the latest yes. purge we saw together. Uh-huh. It was an 11 o'clock showing was, yes. at that Court Street Theater on a Saturday. Yes, and it was packed. It was completely packed. That sounds awesome. I'm oh, it was great. And I'm a big believer a of like... Um, the John Waters approach to like audience participation that like, of unless course. you're watching, you yeah. know, and this was an enthusiastic. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> I was not the only person smoking weed. It was a really good crowd. <laughs> Once and again, I missed it's the purge. You're cool supposed stuff. to make noise. It's not I, a Holocaust I, documentary. It's not. Yeah. I saw it at some, uh, I think it was some matinee and there was nobody there. It was very dead. I would have, I would, I wanted to high five everyone around me, but there was nobody there. It was <laughs> Yeah, but excellent crowd, excellent setting. I think maybe the ideal kind of collective. Yeah, yeah, for a kind of B-movie Yeah, and I was stoned enough to not be able to not yell at the screen. Oh, and, and it invited I yelling. I wasn't the loudest person, so <laughs> yeah. it felt, felt good. So let's start, though, talking about... Uh, I don't think either of you have seen the first two purges, uh, no, but, this was my introduction to and, the Purge. Oh, I'm a Purge because, head. I've seen all okay, Purge. I, that's good. But they're not really necessary to talk because I do think that the second, and, the third and fourth Purges have really stepped up sort of the very conscious ideological project of the Purge franchise in a way that you don't necessarily need to know the first ones for. Because the first one honestly just sets up the premise. It has sort of a political bent, but it's mostly just an excuse to do a home invasion movie. The second one is the first one that sort of plays with the world. You're outside, you're running around, you're seeing people purging. But it's also, its politics are relatively, you know, uh, they're explicit, but they're also sort of simple. Purge, th- uh, purge election year, and now the first I'm with Blurge. And, uh, are, or I'm with Herge and the Blurge, that's what I've been calling them. Are, are, are very explicit, not only in sort of identifying the Purge as a metaphor, sort of for for the forces of capitalism at work and, and racism in America, but also w- with a very specific and divergent between the two movies sort of recipe for how to deal with them. Right. Uh, so the first one, uh, the first one we'll be talking about, Purge Election Year, came out in the summer of 2016 during the campaign between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. 
and I remember seeing the Purge commercials during the debate, during the Republican debates in, two, in early 2016. And they're, they're jo- you can find these on YouTube. I think we should use them, actually, if we can find them. And they were, they were fake political ads. This July, have your voice be heard. I purged. I purged. Show your support. I purged because it's my civic duty. For the purge. I purged because staying in is an American. And it was people like regular, sort of stereotypical American middle class people looking at the camera and saying, I'm doing my part to make America great by purging. And then they would, you watch that, and then you would watch Donald Trump and like Chris Christie, you know, try to argue about which countries they were going to irradiate if they became president. Right. It was, it was really surreal. Well, and the substance of, of that one was very interesting too, because it, um, it was based on kind of the purge being around a religious cult, which in 2016, that was the thing. Oh no, the reactionaries, the weird religious zealots completely changes by the time we get to the blurge two years later. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, I think because we hadn't really had a Republican governance since Bush, that Bush at era sort of theocracy was still the way people conceived of reaction in america so the bad guys the the new founding fathers in in uh in purge election here are explicitly painted as sort of american evangelical maniacs who like the purge because it gets them off yeah uh kyle secord yes kyle secord uh uh uh, last seen by me anyway uh in homicide life on the street good show uh, plays the presidential candidate for the party, and he's running against a young, uh, up-and-coming, glasses-wearing uh, senator played by uh, Elizabeth Mitchell, who's running on a campaign of ending the purge. That's kind and of that, her whole platform. That's right? their entire platform. Yeah, that's it. No like, more nothing purge. Else matters. <laughs> just, just no. It's basically the, it's a referendum on the purge, and uh, and Secord is he's a minister, uh, and and the, uh, towards the end of the movie, there's a scene where he is giving a speech to a bunch of the other new founding fathers at a church about the cleansing power of purging. Uh, and it's really put in psychosexual terms. Like that's why they, that's why they, they do it because they're getting off on it. Yeah. And, and, the, and, it, and it has, so it, it's, it has that sort of, you know, idealistic analysis of the situation. And then it also has, uh, as you say, a very uh, sort of hashtag I'm with her approach to dealing with it mm-hmm. uh, because the conflict between the, non-purgers the anti-purgers uh are is between elizabeth mitchell's presidential candidate who's on the run from the new founding fathers who are trying to murder her on purge night so that she won't win uh and these revolutionary cell this of of, of mostly black real uh gorillas who are just going to kill them all like they have a plan to find them at their purge night which block and all and just murk them. I think was intended to echo like, uh, look, guys, don't go too far left of of 2016. However, if it was actually a purge, yes, you should be a terrorist. You should kill the purging people. Like that's a situation where it's completely justified. These are these are not. This is not a Bernie versus Hillary situation. There's just there's going to be like mass murder. Yeah, I mean the the situation they're referring to is one where there's sort of a neo-fascist regime that's that's enforcing a mass pur- calling, a purging of of lower class and, and minority populations on purpose, 
and and uh, Elizabeth Mitchell's character is telling these revolutionaries, no, there's a better way to be. Don't get mad. Vote. Yeah, go to the ballot. We can vote them out of office. Don't shoot. Vote. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, it's in the film. It's successful because they show her. She talks them out of killing all of the all of the all of the founding fathers, and then she wins the election. Uh, and it is very clearly suggested that the purge is finally coming to an end. But when you look at the new founding fathers regime and what they're doing, there's basically a 0% chance that they would ever give up power willingly. You know? Yeah. It, and even when it comes to her winning the election, I mean, if you saw in the movie where she has the debate with uh, the purge pastor, who's the candidate for the NFFA, he clearly outlines the economic benefits of the purge. He's yeah. Like, yeah. He's the only one talking about jobs. Yeah. He's like 99. <laughs> he was the only one talking, talking about, about jobs. jobs. It's true. 99.9% of the year, you know, full employment, just the entire economy moves around preparing for purge night and then getting, you know, the after effects of purge night. And her response to it literally is, there are other ways. And she doesn't even say it to him. She just no whispers... Mention. There are other ways no into mention. the mic. And I, and I don't think after that debate performance, you know, anybody would be interested in, in her solution. And it's, it's true. really interesting in that the movie highlights this parallel with our, like, The Purge. I really like The Purge Cinematic Universe because it's one of the few things that highlights the fact that in our universe, how we take care of um, the economy is... We make sure there are millions and millions of people who are willing and able to work but can't find a job. That mm. is surplus. That is the active policy of the Federal Reserve. It says, okay, maybe four percent, maybe five percent, maybe six percent is what it is. We have to have millions of people. Disproportionately, they are African American. Disproportionately, uh, they live in cities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We have to keep them um, unemployed to stabilize prices and to stabilize employment. And like the purge universe isn't even, well, it's extreme, but it's just an extreme version of that. What if it's just like killing them and we turn, you know, we monetize killing them and we have this kind of But I have to say, the first time there was a labor shortage, they're like, oh my God, we would have to stop the purge because they benefit from the surplus of labor that they well, can fuck with. Well, well they, it's all, it's about finding that balance. Yeah, and I, th- I mean, what we're seeing, and the way that Trump ran, and, and the argument being made, is now very much in the range of we can't have any more people, we can't afford it, and 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 and, uh, and you know, the arg- the argument is against getting too much unemployment, uh, too little um, unemployment. Is eventually you'll have to raise wages, but they have enough dominance over the labor market, and mm. and, and workers have such a a. a weak hand in dealing with ownership that wages even though unemployment is very low are not really going up and so they're sort of in a perfect position and why would you want more people who need to be you know uh uh paid for look not to sound like a liberal technocrat though i'm just saying the federal reserve is far more efficient than the perch well, yes well i, I guess not having a job is better than being murdered or having to sell yourself well and like from a capitalist point of view what if you need a a huge mobile body of labor to i don't know build something or something yeah but there's they don't want to build anything anymore anything that isn't like private they they don't have any interest in like public investment that they just they just have like their hellosphere or whatever and you know they're 
True, yeah. And I guess they don't this want, does and they seem don't to want, only you know, occur unskilled labor for that. That's the real issue is that the unskilled labor right. is increasingly redundant and yeah. unnecessary, but you still have the people. And what do you do with them? And and I mean that's a question that's a question that's going to become more and more salient, especially as people start moving more and more to escape the effects of climate change. And one it of the, does seem to one of the solutions is going to be well, they have to be they have to be taken care of. Uh, and and I think the purge is, is prescient in that. And also, as you pointed out, like that debate, this movie was made before the 2016 election, but that debate really was Trump versus Hillary because. His response is, yes, we're going to do awful things, but it's going to make the economy good and you're going to have a job. And, and, and uh, she says, no, we're better than that, which was the entirety of the 2016 campaign. Yeah. One guy saying, you know, we're going to do things to make your life better, even if it seems heinous to some of you squishy people. And, and the response being, no, that's immoral. You're a bad person for supporting that. And no response. Never says what the... What the- Alternative other ways are not all it's really interesting that the tagline for the movie was keep america great (laughs) right it's in the future america has been made great and the point is keep the purge you know keep it in this kind of line that it's been in which is now no joke that is already the 2020 trump re-election i've seen hats i've seen hats on the subway they're not make america great again they're keep america great hats wow yep (laughs) yeah some bozos unfurled a trump 2020 keep america great banner at yankee stadium the other week I remember um, like being on a panel with some people who did design, like they're designers. And one of the designers had this very like come to Jesus moment where he's like, you know, I think we spend a lot of time trying to craft an inspiring aesthetic. He's like, but I think the Make America Great Again hat proves that what we do doesn't matter and isn't relevant to politics. Things don't have to be attractive or stylish. Oh God, I remember when he brought that, the first time he wore that hat, he, he wore it, he was wearing one of that, one of those, he was wearing one of those uh, sports coats and he, and he had it on his head at a rally and everybody made fun of it. Yeah. Everyone was like, that Where looks the like suckers, a fam. Though? That hat's a fam. You know, <laughs> uh, what is that? Yeah. And did not matter. Did not, no one was aesthetically repulsed enough to not vote for it. Nope. In fact, a lot of them probably were like, oh, you think that doesn't look cool? Well, how it's going to look cool when I'm wearing one and he's president, which is what happened. Hooray. Yeah. He made America fam again. He, <laughs> he absolutely did that. So if, if uh, you could very much tell that uh, the purge election year is a movie made under, the, under Obama uh, in a world where people assumed Hillary was going to win, mm-hmm. where, where incrementalism and electoralism and uh, America was redeemable, basically. Right. Like this, was a, this was a path that could be diverted from. Mm-hmm. Uh, the First Purge is absolutely a movie made after Donald Trump somehow <laughs> becomes president. Yeah. Because all of that sort of idealism and, uh, and, and, and I mean, an ideal, idealism in the sense of thinking that the electoral system is viable, thinking that, uh, that there's something redeemable in America – and thinking that like the purge is a project of you know just people with psychotic religious views as opposed right. to far more materialist yeah, exactly. far more materialist yeah. they they found out that it it really was about jobs yes the purge um, characters in the 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 purge uh leadership the guys uh carrying out the purge in uh the first purge are not 
glassy-eyed religious fanatics. They are waddling technocrat. You know, they look like the guy, the main dude looks like Sean Spicer or something. They're just harried, harried government officials who need to, you know, meet some benchmarks for the economy or whatever and are willing to do anything to make that happen. And Marissa Tomei. Is the and chief Marissa scientist. Tomei. As Dr. the scientist. Who looks amazing. Yes. The scientist. Yeah. That is one of my favorites. So She could f- purge me. Okay. So <laughs> she could, the first purge, she could purge for those me. who haven't seen it, it, and you should, is a prequel that, that uh, shows the very first time that this new government, this new Founding Fathers government that arose out of a massive economic collapse uh, in the near future does the purge. And it started off not as nationwide. They didn't go, hey, everybody, we're one night a year, year no crime, all crimes legal, go nuts. You got to do a beta test. Exactly. They did, a, they did a pilot program on Staten Island. Which is honestly the best place to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. It's an island, first of it's all. An, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so Staten Island became the pilot place where they were going to do what they called it. Uh, they, weren't, they didn't call it, hey, we're doing this to help the economy. Hey, we're doing this you know, to get rid of some excess miles to feed. They couched it in scientific inquiry. They say, we have this scientist, Marissa Tomei, who has a theory about human aggression that if we all had a chance to just go buck wild one time a year, the rest of the time we'd be more chilled out. Of course, this is an insane idea, but still, it has a veneer of scientific legitimacy to it. Look, when someone ages that well, you don't question them. Absolutely. No. If, yeah, exactly. If Marissa Tomei wanted me to drink radium, I would do it. Uh, and she wouldn't even have to tell me why. I'd just do it. Um, <laughs> and so they create a pilot program on Staten Island, and everyone's going to see what happens. Uh, and Marissa Tomei is telling people it's to find out you know, what human nature is like and how people are going to respond to this and lower crime maybe. But we know that the government secretly is rigging the test so that it will work, so that a lot of people will participate, a lot of people will get killed, mm-hmm. and it will justify doing it in the future because they have this plan of clearing out uh, uh, housing projects and poor neighborhoods for, for people with money and not having to worry about uh, you know, welfare payments or whatever. And, and they are paying people to participate in the purge. They're recruiting people like five grand too, which yes. is like the most realistic part. People in America would literally do anything for five grand. Absolutely. And the Dr. Yakub moment is they have to wear oh these my God, contact yeah. lenses that are blue. Yeah. And so it's a very Hotep movie. Yeah, so they definitely used Hotep like as consultants. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then at some point it's kind of like too good. And it's like maybe they brought on. Bruce Dixon from like Black this, Agenda yes, Report. Yes, so it's, it's like, like half, half Bruce Dixon, half Hotep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they put out, and so people who agree to participate put on these blue contact lenses that record everything they do, and then they get paid more if they actually go out and kill people, uh, because most of the people are leaving the island. People who have money, and this is one of the things that is true in all of the Purge movies. One of the salient political observations of the Purge films is you th- something like the Purge, all crime legal, one night a year. It is sold and processed maybe as sort of a universal thing, like a law. Okay, this is going to affect everybody equally, but the realities of wealth disparity mean that people are unequally endangered by it. People with money, you leave the country or you throw up. If you can't leave the country, you throw up You know, uh, yeah. barriers around your house. It's only the people who are poor who cannot afford to shield themselves from the purge. So everybody with money in Staten Island who doesn't want to stick around and be psycho leaves. And even poor people... Uh, you know, if they don't want to risk their lives, do it. But if you need five grand, those are the people who stay. Uh, and at first, the purge isn't really doing anything. Mm-hmm. There's one psycho who kind of runs through the whole film 
uh, as sort of uh, an unstable antagonist. They named Skeletor, Skeletor, which is a bit much. Uh, yes, it, he was a bit much. Yeah, uh, and he's just running around and stabbing people. But for the most part, it's just block parties. It's just people enjoying themselves. This this was a criticism, a criticism of the earlier movies. People said it was too reactionary because if you made crime legal, probably it'd be a lot of looting and block parties. Nobody's why yeah. does everybody jump straight to murder? Exactly, yeah. and this and movie this- shows. That they have to rig it because mm-hmm. when people aren't don't kill each other, they start just trucking in white supremacists <laughs> to start massacring people in Staten Island. Yeah, the uh, outside agitators, if you will. Yeah, exactly. But uh, they, uh, but this actually, this had a very kind of rosy view of of human nature. Yes. It, I mean, not not rosy. I think a more realistic one, where it's just like, no, like people, people don't. Not everyone kill each is other. just like see. I don't not kill people because it's illegal. Right. Yeah. Nobody's right. sitting there like I looking don't at do the, it because it's messy. Yeah. Nobody's like looking at their neighbor and looking at their watch and be like, okay, purge is in two weeks. I'm going to cut his fucking head off. Uh, and, and, but that's one of the movies, I think, trenchant critiques is like a lot of these things that were presented to us as pathologies of human nature or whatever are pathologies of capitalism, mm-hmm. are, are the result of, of intentional deprivation. Way uh, more and, economistic yeah, movie. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and which is why it is it, it's so much fun to watch because it is it is like the most sort of blatantly uh, ideological and and like you know maybe call it Marxist film that out of like the exploitation uh, um, genre since like they live I mean it's like a socialist realist exploitation movie in that way which is very rare and cool. You were saying like they brought back the black exploitation movie. Yes, it was a very good resurrection of the black exploitation yeah. genre. And and like in the social realist vein, uh, the transformation of the hero, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Dimitri, who is a, a drug dealer. So Dimitri is the head of a drug gang. He stays in Staten Island to secure the bag, basically to keep his mm-hmm. like stuff from getting jacked because it's too dangerous to move it. Even and- though. Even though he had a sensible uh, uh, gang colleague who was like, let's go to Brooklyn. Let's go to Brooklyn. And it's like <laughs> the entire theater was screaming, go to Brooklyn. Go to Brooklyn. Yes. But in the did not. It's, you tradition. know what it is? It's, it's the opposite of the Warriors, this movie, in many ways. <laughs> yeah, you just got to stay put. Uh, so he stays to secure the bag. Uh, he's got some underlings who want to purge, and he's just like, "No, we're professionals. Don't get, don't do that." And he has a girlfriend who is an activist who uh, yeah. fights with him over his livelihood uh, while she's trying to like raise awareness well, for the exploitation yeah, yeah. going on. And he is like, "I don't have time for this. I'm trying to make money." And then over the course of the night, he witnesses the government bringing in these murders to shoot people up, including a, I, I would argue, probably tasteless, but still sort of. Uh, uh, frankly enthralling for how tasteless it was reference to uh the dylan roof shooting right. yeah he shot up a church when a bunch yeah. of nazis shoot up a black church and it's like fuck you get yeah. this is real shit right here well and they weren't even real nazis too which i found weird too because i was like but staten island well, has the thing its own is, is that they don't <laughs> right that, they just is, don't look like KKK that's honestly nazis. the one thing i was kind of bothered by is that they show these guys coming in and they never really indicate, are they just pure mercenaries, like Blackwater? Some of them are Blackwater guys, but like, are these guys also I like real Nazis? I think there was Nazis? a line, where did those come from? Right. 
uh, and they don't really explain it. And the, and the one thing I think could have really would have helped and would have been a nice little bit of salt into the stew is if you'd had at least one carload of Staten Island Guidos who stayed around that, to yeah. do hate crimes. That was my the comment I made to in the theater is you don't need like out, you don't need yeah. like to import your yeah. uh, it's like just a couple <laughs> of guys you know, uh, named Carmine. Yeah. In, the neighborhood is changing. Yeah, no yeah, sleeves, yeah. no sleeves on their shirts, track suits, exactly. you know, baseball bats. But people and, and are guns still kind of infatuated with, uh, a kind of anachronistic form of racism. Well, I mean, I mean the one we mm-hmm. have now, it's not nothing. You could use that. <laughs> I think, well, part of it is that, uh, like a lot of the organized racists in America sort of are intentionally hearkening back to anachronistic racism. Like the mm-hmm. fucking, tor- I mean, there were torches in the movie to sort of evoke the Unite the Right Charlottesville rally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause like those guys like that shit. They like right. the old pictures of like, you know, the marches in DC of all the Klansmen and this stuff. This is what I've said before is that, you know, it's bad enough being Nazi, but you have to be like a nostalgist and yeah. a Europhile at the same time. It's pretty pathetic. Get a, get a new type of, of, of Nazism. Yeah. We know? have all kinds new Jack of Nazism. internet and stuff now. Yeah. Update your racism. Yeah. I mean, if some of them, if the guys in this movie had had groiper masks, I would have appreciated yeah, that a yeah. lot. That, that could have been, been really cool. funny. Actually. Yeah. Uh, so he witnesses this happening and he is in front of the viewer radicalized to become a socialist hero out of like a Russian novel from the thirties. Well, and at one point he said something about like, we don't, you know, we don't do this or whatever. Or, and it was like, but you, you do do that. Right. I mean, that is your chosen profession, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> partly. Right. And it's unclear if he's supposed to be, because every one of the Purge movies have this kind of quasi Black Panther, yeah. Black right. armed rebel group. Yes, and it's yeah. unclear if he's related to any of them because there's just, I think different it doesn't say, time. but I kind right. of, I kind of, you, I think you can sort of imagine it is, yes, that is the locust of the, of the guerrilla movement that is later in the film, in, right. later in the chronology, Michael K. Williamson in mm-hmm. the second one, and then the guy who I can't even remember because he was not very memorable in the third one. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I think that, that resistance group, you could kind of argue, like, it right. had its, That's it had its seeds yeah. uh, in, in him. But by the end of the movie, after shooting it out and killing all these, these guys, he's, Marching down the street like five abreast with a bunch of the other right. survivors, the leader of like this new resistance movement, and it is like it's a it's a communist like parable yeah. of like someone having sort of like an Upton Sinclair turned like a realization and being born again into socialist revolution, yeah. which is is you don't see that too too often. One of the things I thought was sort of interesting that it did exist in the second movie it did exist in the blurge but in it was extremely prevalent in the i'm with herge where uh they say what is happening to this country and they would just say that shit over and over she would say that watching like news reports yeah what is happening and i don't know that anyone has ever uttered that phrase without being reactionary well, I mean, it's a common lib refrain. I mean, on now, like since I said, Trump, reactionary. I know, but it's a, that's such a that's such a pervasive cultural sort. But of, it's like a histrionic kind of comment, kind of thing. It's like, well, it's never been great. If you, I mean, what what time period are you are you pining I, right. for? To be charitable, I think the people who do that, if you really interrogated it on, would 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 argue that 
if you are if you do stress sort of the continuity of awfulness you know how how everything bad we have now is sort of uh, uh part of a great chain of exploitation and racism and everything through history i think they would say that that would let tend to make people less uh outraged and less liable to want to change things than if you emphasize this as a new form of awfulness that must be stopped i just don't think it's much of a real sentiment that like working class people express that frequently well, and it's no. always being uttered well, by of course you not. know no, this right, is all right. liberal yeah this is all liberal yeah. like professional class i mean like everything we see and everything that is made even things that try to gesture towards you know working class uh points of view that are not made by working class people by yeah. definition they're made by people who are members of sort of a broad liberal professional class i mean they're behind the cameras of a major motion picture by they by definition or not you know uh, and if they were at one point, they no longer are part of that. So, like that's the that's the sort of conversational, uh, you know, ether that they're part of. And I think the thought they have is, if people really think of this as a as a radical break with America's history, they will be more likely to want to stop. Whereas if you just tell them that this is kind of how shitty things have always been, then they're going to be more likely to just kind of tune out and be like, yeah, I guess we live in a shit country. Uh, and I don't agree with that. I think that that the danger of 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 exoticizing the present is greater than the advantages because you you a lot of a lot of people tune out because they don't see a continuity and they think you look hysterical for trying to act like things are that different mm-hmm. and uh it's and, also just incredibly alienating when like half the country their whole lives have been shit exactly and, and that's the other thing is that it it, it reduces somebody who has experienced america sort of as a, a vast progression of awfulness to want to really do anything if the only promise they're going to get is that it's going to go back to how it was before which they knew sucked too uh but yeah i think that's what they're thinking i, don't I, agree I think with it. it matters who the the awfulness for whom is being portrayed because when the handmade tale the first season came out there were a thousand think pieces and every other one was is this trump's america hmm. you judge for yourself kind <laughs> of thing and it was you know there was this you know, strong interest in linking the Handmaid's Tale universe, the TV show's universe, with what was happening now, even though the TV show had made this kind of cowardly decision um, to play down the white supremacist elements Mm. of the Gilead regime. It's like, yes, it's misogyny, but it's racially integrated misogyny. Whereas the Purge universe is very clearly like, the new founding fathers, they own like the insurance companies and the corporations profiting from this. They are very clearly either hiring outright white supremacists or hiring people who are dressed like them, etc., etc. It's like a very kind of, um, I think, a much more pointed criticism. And But this one kind of doesn't get, it does not launch a thousand uh, think pieces the right. other way. Yeah, it should. I mean, if people are going to talk about if people are going to explain everything through popular culture, the purge is more relevant than basically anything right. else. It's better than Harry Potter. It's better than Handmaid's Tale. It's yeah. be- all of them. Certainly, also, yeah. it is more fun. Absolutely, it, is, like, it, 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 it wasn't just a, like the the you know, like a. I mean, it brought back I think 
the the black exploitation movie in like a fun way, but also we're like this is like a good B movie. This is this is a, yeah. It's 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 a little bit thoughtful. It's ham fisted yeah. in some ways. Well, which I is love what you that. Want. It's it's oh, a, it's a movie about I, a purge. I, I don't want it. subtlety in For my me, yeah. like that. To me, is something that I'm genuinely. I genuinely crave it like like if if you've been drinking seltzer all day and then you have like a real coke like so many movies like the, the default expectation you know that the CIA helped cultivate during the modernist era was you can't really be too explicit about your ideology that's not artistically you know meaningful or mm-hmm. have any content you need to you need to be subtle you need to like a flavor things touch, things have yeah. to have a light touch things have to be shaded and it's like that can be good but like it's not the only way to do it yeah and like a full just a blast a shotgun blast to the face of like ideological exploitative art that's just it's invigorating in a way that 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 more subtle and, and maybe better way isn't always mm-hmm. well also and it acknowledges that it is making entertainment yeah and it was an entertaining movie absolutely the one problem i have and this has gone for all of the purges and i want to start writing letters to purge inc to make them stop this <laughs> for the love of god Use some real squibs for once. Please stop using CGI blood splatter. Right. Uh, it sucks. It looks yeah. bad. It has not been perfected. It's like, just put... We're not a, there yet. We're not there yet. Put a goddamn blood packet and a little cap and blow it up in the guy's shirt. Just mm-hmm. please. If they had done that in this movie, honestly, because uh, I think this is my favorite of the Purge movies, the, 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 the first Purge, if they just had some fucking squibs it would be one of my favorite movies of like the past five years. As it stands, I just was always feeling like, oh, that looks like shit. If you're going to stylize violence, it should be stylized. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> Give us the stop. You know, uh, or go all the way and do the, the Tarantino thing and just equip them with sprinkler systems. <laughs> that's, right. That rules Which too. is very fun and cool to look at. But the other thing that is great about the Purge franchise is that it's such a simple concept and it's so easy to get that it can really be slotted in anywhere. So not only do we have in the Purge movies, we have different genres. Like the first movie is a home invasion horror film. Right. The second one is basically second and third ones are like pure action movies. Right. Basically, this one has more of a horror element with the slasher guy. Skeletor. Uh, uh, but there's like really endless possibilities. And the thing I love about it is, is that they're actually kind of, for once, uh, going through with with uh, exploring them all because there's also in addition to the film franchise going to be a purge television show really in september uh a limited series like 10 episodes by itself i'll totally watch that yeah about a purge i don't know anything else about it i'm gonna try to keep myself surprised but uh i can't wait for that that's gonna rule it should be like 24 what is just like the first hour the second yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) Yeah, i I think that is gonna i think it's all gonna be like one purge over the and so yeah bring that on bring on more purge movies Go, go purge. Go purge. Okay. So thank you, uh, everyone, for being with us thank to you talk about me. this delightful f- film series. Uh, and now for uh, a little more serious topic. A little, we're going to go back into history. Different kind of purge. Yeah, different kind of purge that happened among a bunch of cockeyed optimists <laughs> in the 60s and 70s and their friends in the federal government. Uh, this is... Amber's interview with Aaron Leonard, author of A Threat of the First Magnitude. Hey there, Grey Wolves. This is Amber Lee Frost here with a very special episode of Chapo Trap House. 
We have here with us Aaron J. Leonard, one of the authors of A Threat of the First Magnitude, FBI Counterintelligence and Infiltration from the Communist Party to the Revolutionary Union, 1962 to 1974. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Amber. It's, uh, it's great to uh, finally get to talk. <laughs> um, so this is, first of all, an incredible book because it's just an incredible story. I think most people who are familiar with left politics know something about COINTELPRO. Um, they know a little bit about counterintelligence. Um, I'm not sure if people know the exact scope and uh, comprehensiveness of the sort of uh, government interference in left organizing from the very beginning. Um, so I was wondering if we could start out with just a definition. Uh, what is counterintelligence and what is COINTELPRO and what is the difference between the two? Well, counterintelligence is a, it's a doctrine based essentially a military doctrine where you're trying to undermine your enemy. You know, your enemy is operating kind of, you know, in the United States, uh, you could have forces operating as a foreign agent or as domestic subversion and counterintelligence is trying to undermine that, uh, you know, through secret means, you know, it's not a, you know, not a declared uh, adversarial relation. It's, it's operating in the background. COINTELPRO itself was a program that began in the 50s by the FBI aimed at the Communist Party USA. And it was a it was a discrete program aimed at really undermining and destroying the party. Uh, it evolved as the 60s kind of you know started to get more dynamic and more threatening to the standing authority to be uh, there was a counterintelligence Black extremists aimed at groups like the Black Panthers, Student, student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, at, at individuals like uh, Martin Luther King and James Foreman. Uh, there was also a counterintelligence uh, new left aimed at groups like SDS and later groups in the New Communist Movement. Another aimed at Puerto Rican independent uh, advocates. I, I think it, it ended up being like six or seven different COINTELPROs. This is what most people know. It's, you know, they know about the uh, poison pen letters that were sent to uh, Jeff Fort and his street organization in Chicago to try to you know, rile them up against the Black Panthers in Chicago. They know about the secret letter sent to Martin Luther King encouraging him to essentially kill himself because the FBI was on to his uh, having extramarital affairs. I mean, King didn't know the FBI was writing to him. It was written as an outside exposure. So they're, they're different things. And, and the FBI has engaged in counterintelligence program, in, in counterintelligence, you know, the, the kind of broader thing, more overall under the cover of something called internal security investigations, which were, kind of the currency in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, COINTELPRO, you know, the actual named organization, is a lot of what people know, and unfortunately it's where things start and stop. Um, you know, I was, a, I was a Maoist for many years and kind of fancied myself kind of up on this stuff mm. and, you know, had read this. But, you know, when I stopped that, you know, I stopped being a Maoist, and I'm not quite sure what I am today. I'm a writer, if anything. Uh, but 
I re-examine, you know, what it is that, that a group like the FBI actually does. And it, it just kind of led me further and further to want to get deeper and deeper to understand it, because I think people today who are, you know, from whatever, you know, stepping off point, you know, looking for social justice, looking for a better world, you know, it's really in their interest to understand how this works actually versus a lot of received wisdom or a lot of shorthand. Sure. So I read um, that the kind of uh, big kind of counterintelligence uh, programs started with Hoover in like 1919 to target left-wing immigrants mostly. Um, And the CPUSA was the biggest target um, and it was because they supported the Soviets, correct? Well, it's a, it evolved, you know, when the, the Russian revolution kind of created the FBI to try to undermine people in the United States who would support it in the 1920s, there, there were these mass roundups of radical, mainly European, I believe immigrants, uh, in something called the Palmer raids. Palmer was the attorney general. Hoover was a young lawyer working for him. But, you know, beyond the 20s into the 30s, the Communist Party started to become the major radical force in the United States. And they did support the Soviets and, and the FBI with, with the support of, you know, the president, people like Roosevelt um, and the, uh, the attorney generals in the Justice Department. They countered that and they countered it aggressively. So the 30s and 40s and the 50s, the FBI became much more. Uh, sophisticated in trying to undermine the Communist Party USA. You know, the Communist Party in the United States had something like 80,000 people uh, by the end of World War II. So it was kind of on the way to becoming uh, something like a Euro-Communist Party. And then in the 50s, you know, the the U.S. kind of set everything it could against that party, both in the media and by unleashing the FBI to undermine it. I mean, to be a communist in 1950 was probably worse than being a pedophile as far as social acceptability. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but then the FBI kind of met this new challenge, you know, in the wake of the civil rights movement and then the black freedom movement, you know, this whole new thing emerged, uh, which inevitably, or not inevitably, but one of the biggest organized forms to come out of the 60s was the new communist movement, which more Maoism and, and Castroite uh, communism. And, you know, the FBI was, and, you know, they had the Black Panther Party, which was kind of a mixed bag of pro-China, pro-Cuba, black nationalists. So they had all these other threats and that became the big thing. It was kind of the, the rock that smashed them too, you know, because by the mid seventies, a lot of reorganization had to go on. And we, you know, we talk about that some in the book. So, you know, the FBI's had decades of experience, you know, and they weren't always as good as, as they became, but they became very sophisticated. And, and that's one of the things we get into in the book is it's not like every FBI agent was sophisticated, but they, you know, they had a, a, a small cohort who actually took the time to understand the groups they were targeting and they understood geopolitics. And this made them very effective at recruiting informants and attempting to undermine these groups. Sure. Um, So CPUSA was uh, the biggest target, but you mentioned that they uh, branched out into 
infiltrating groups that they refer to as black extremists, uh, the Socialist Workers Party, uh, the New Left, and the Klan. That seems like, let's say, a, a grab bag of organizations. What exactly um, sort of qualified you uh, to be um, considered a threat by the Bureau of, Inter- of Investigation, later the, the FBI? Well, you know, th- that's a good question because, you know, there actually is a method to it. I mean, you know, the FBI is uh, fundamentally tasked with protecting the internal security of the United States. You know, the CIA has a more international scope. I mean, you know, aside from the kind of euphemistic language they package themselves in, it, it's pretty brutal stuff. Uh, what they do, but you know, the FBI was concerned with organizations that, particularly organizations with ties to foreign countries. So um, the Communist Party was generally, by and large, their biggest target and the biggest target of their COINTELPRO operations, their informant penetration, uh, because they had ties to the Soviet Union. You know, the, the history of the last half of the 20th century is the struggle between, you know, the capitalist West and the, uh, you know, the communist East, such as it was. Um, so this, this was real stuff. And the Soviets, even though the Communist Party in the 60s was dwindling and, you know, almost insignificant in terms of, you know, its effect in, in these larger movements, it still was, uh, uh, you know, directly aligned with the Soviet Union. The, the FBI had an informant and the Communist Party, who was essentially like uh, the secretary of state for that group. Gus Hall led the party in the, in the late 50s into the 60s. But he had this guy, Morris Childs, mm-hmm. who, who was his liaison, who went to the Soviet Union. He talked to Khrushchev. He met with Mao Zedong. He met with Brezhnev. He figured out payments that the Soviets were kind of underwriting the work of the Communist Party USA. I mean, you know, from the Soviet standpoint, they they needed an agent in the United States. And I'm not saying the individual cadre of the Communist Party were aware of this. I'm, this is at the very top of the organization. But they recruited Morris Childs um, from the party in 1952 when he was sick and vulnerable. They sent this FBI agent from Chicago, this guy Carl Freeman, to go to Morris Child's apartment. He was sick in bed. He had a heart, heart trouble. He kind of left the party. His, yeah, his wife, wife had left, just left him. him. Yeah, yeah. Um, like they literally found him when he was recovering from like a heart attack and his wife had left him. He had been made a pariah by the party too. It was interesting This that the guy, uh, Browder was the name. Yeah, Browder was, a follower was kind of, of Browder. his mentor. Yeah, yeah Browder was uh, disgraced. So his mentor disgraced. He got pushed out. I'm sure he had a lot of bitterness towards the party and his life was really miserable. So they, I, it seems like one of their all-time most useful informants, someone who literally had, you know, practical and useful conversations with Mao was a former very committed and uh, formerly trusted party member. Yeah, the guy had keys to every office, uh, metaphorically. But, you, you know, the way you even said that, it's like, it's just cold-blooded, right? It's like, yeah. let's get this guy at his most vulnerable, and then let's go to work on him. And that's exactly what they did. But, you know, beyond the kind of, you know, that moral uh, problematic, there is, uh, it was a strategy. They had this program in the 50s called Top Lev. You know, the Communist Party was like, 
in a mess in the early 50s. Their leaders had been sent to jail for uh, sedition under the Smith Act. They were playing with, you know, taking a part of their organization underground. They had lost thousands of people. They were in internal turmoil. And then the FBI said, well, this is a good time to go interview leaders and try to flip them. They had this campaign called Top Left for Top Level. And they systematically went after everybody they could identify as leaders of the group to, you know, quote unquote, interview them. And when the FBI interviews them, it's uh, this is not a passive thing. This is uh, it's either trying to intimidate people or trying to kind of beat the bushes to see if there's the potential to turn somebody into an informant or, you know, just try to garner information that otherwise wouldn't be available. So this doctrine you know, we kind of discovered this is what they did. I mean, not just with the Communist Party, but then into the new communist movement and the uh, black freedom movement is they really tried to get people in the top of organizations because, you know, that gives you know that gives them the most initiative. And, and they were reasonably successful with this. But Morris Childs, like you said, he was the most successful. And the guy was... Uh, an agent for 25 years, and it never got exposed until uh, the academic David Garrow discovered um, in researching Martin Luther King that the FBI had this uh, thing called Operation Solo. You know, Morris Childs was, him and his brother were Operation Solo, you know, the top informants in the Communist Party USA. One of the weird things to me is just the density of informants they had. I- you mentioned um, at its height, I think in 1968, and just going to SDS for a second, they had 300 chapters, and they said they had an informant in every chapter, and some chapters had more than one informant. Now that, I mean, I can see it was an insurgent movement. It had, it had grown massively from like 300 people to 300 chapters in like five years. But for CPUSA, I mean, you said... They had like 80,000 members in 1944. By 1962, they were down to like 5,000 members, and they still had the same number roughly of informants, like 431 informants. And assuming those informants were, you know, like dues payers, that's 8.5% of the membership of CPUSA. How would you justify that number? It's a pretty rough legacy for the CPUSA. Uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, I'm still un- understanding this, but uh, one of the things, you know, we discovered in writing the book is there's there's a quality to it. There's informants, there's informants who give casual bits of information, and then there are informants who actually operate at the very top level of organizations. SDS, like you mentioned, I, I think at their peak, they claimed 100,000 people. You know, how many of them were actually uh, committed day-to-day activists would be a good deal less. But, yeah, the FBI had informants in all those chapters. So, And I, and I suspect most of them were just, you know, quasi-casual members. But the FBI did exercise a certain control over them. I mean, one of the things we discovered is that, you know, the FBI, or excuse me, SDS had a huge schism in 1969. They had this kind of conventional Marxist-Leninist group called Progressive Labor trying to exert influence in the group. And then they had uh, 
the national office, which was much more radical, would go on to become the weathermen. And then there was a larger, larger mass of kind of radical students, uh, not inclined to either pull, but more tactically aligning with the national office. The FBI actually instructed its informants to vote with the national office. And the rationale was, look, you know, these people are going to go off and do political violence. They're going to break laws and we can go after them full force. If this group Progressive Labor Party takes charge, you know, they're more savvy politically. You know, they're not going to charge off and do uh, uh, kind of reckless things. And, and in the long haul, they're going to be more dangerous. That was their assessment, you know, at the moment. But, you know, they actually instructed their considerable cadre of informants to vote with the national office in that case. But the point is, you know, there is informants at low levels and then there's kind of an elite um, who go in and, and operate for as long as they can and do consider, you know, they have influence and, you know, from the standpoint of the organizations can do a good deal more damage. Sure. Yeah. I think uh, it's interesting, the contrast at one point, there's an anecdote where um, FBI paid two, in their own words, vagrants a dollar each, I believe, to just go into a May Day crowd and just, dis- distribute flyers yeah that was wild right yeah it was in a document and and you know you can see that's easy and uh and uh you know they got away with it as near as i can tell sure. actually what, what was he more interesting to well not so much more interesting but that reminds me of another thing that happened is how blind the left can sometimes be is uh the FBI was circulating this phony document in the ranks of the Communist Party, which pretended to be a pro-Maoist um, uh, faction within the Communist Party USA. And they circulated this thing called the Ad Hoc Bulletin for a Scientific Socialist Line. And the leaders of the Communist Party discovered that this bulletin was circulating. The idea was Communist Party members would read the bulletin and become all riled up against the Soviet policies, you know, and the FBI leveraged that dissent to create dissension in the group. You know, quite a number of people were kicked out of the Communist Party for adhering to this ad hoc uh, right, right. bulletin. But the thing is, so this ad hoc bulletin is circulating, and the, and the first thing the communists think is, oh, my God, the Trotskyists, they're the ones that have done this. Right, and they're not, right. They're not thinking it's the FBI. They're thinking it's a, another left Set. Yeah, one of my favorite lines in the book is, um, they did not assume there were forces more hostile than, than the Trotskyists. Yeah, right? Right, right. Well, let's back up a little bit. Uh, why don't you tell us what the ad hoc committee for a Marxist-Leninist party is? Oh, it's a trip. And this is where <laughs> I start to sound like Glenn Beck with his convoluted organization. I know, part. I know. It's really hard to read this book without feeling insane, but I assure you one of the best parts of it is that half of it is primary documents, so you can go and look at all of these things so you know that you're not just losing your mind. Yeah, well, I, I was trying to cover my back a little bit because, you know, it, it does sound a little out there, you know, without actually, if there's no grounding. The Ad Hoc Committee in 1962 it's the brainchild of this guy, Herbert K. Stallings, who's a special agent in the Chicago Counterintelligence Office, whose main task is to undermine the Communist Party USA. We discovered 
the ad hoc committee through the work of this guy, David Sullivan, who was a revolutionary union member who had left and was briefly researched in 1980 and kind of, uh, he stored a few files in the NYU Tamament Library that we discovered. He wasn't able to fully resolve, you know, what the ad hoc committee was, but through the efforts of a, an academic art X team, we got hold of a document that prominently had the name of Herbert K. Stallings that also seemed to be associated with the ad hoc committee. So I Googled, Googled ad hoc committee and Herbert Stallings, and what appeared was the personnel file of Carl Freeman. Carl Freeman is the guy who recruited Morris Childs. Carl Freeman is the Chicago FBI supervisor of the counterintelligence program. In his file is a clearly stated uh, articulation of what the ad hoc committee is, and it it says that it came out of the imagination of S. A. Herb Stallings, and its idea was to be a pro-Maoist construct in the pro-Soviet Communist Party USA. I'm paraphrasing the last bit, but it spells out in meticulous detail that you know we're going to build a fake Maoist sect inside the Communist Party USA, you know, just to give you a sense of that, it, it would be like a pro-Trump faction in the Democratic Party. These things are irreconcilable. To be a pro-Maoist in 1963 in the Communist Party USA is, it, it's, I think the right. word is this anathema. Right, this was also right uh, after because this. Because they're passing polemics back and forth and they're really hating each other. Uh, but they, you know, this guy Stalling starts to produce these bulletins, you know, and they're reasonably sophisticated. And as time goes on, the bulletin gets more and more sophisticated. The group is around for, I think, 10 or 15 years. Uh, and they changed their name to the Ad Hoc Committee for Marxist-Leninist Party. Never once make any effort to actually build a Marxist-Leninist Party while other people are doing it. Uh, but they, they weigh in, and, and they're kind of respected among you know, those in the know, even though they're super secret and nobody really knows what the deal is. But they intervene in all kinds of stuff. And like we write in the book, there are 15 to 17,000 pages on this group that are slowly going to get released. I should be getting 200 pages in a year. I mean, I'll be dead when all this stuff finally comes out. But I strongly suspect when the full um, program of the ad hoc committee is written, you know, it's going to probably change our conception of some of the stuff of the 60s because you know, we know they were involved in the Revolutionary Union. We know they were involved in the Communist Party USA. We have evidence that they were involved in progressive labor parties. So they were um, amid and among some of the major players doing the devious work. Right. I mean, it seems like um, the Bureau had done things like this before on a smaller scale before just to like they would make fake organizations like the, uh, you know, whatever red people's union of Louisiana or, or something like that. And so that they could write recommendations for people so that they could say, right. oh, this person is on the up and up. And that way they could embed themselves because they have a reference from a supposedly legitimate organization. But the ad hoc committee for a Marxist Leninist party, it was a massive undertaking and it was huge and it wasn't real and it completely threw everything into chaos. Now, I, they were able to do this because of the Sino-Soviet schism, correct? Yeah, it's, um, 
it's a puzzle because um, it, you know, nobody ever. And this is the thing with the FBI is uh, they're really good at keeping secrets. I mean, some of the stuff they were forced to disclose. I mean, everybody knows about the COINTELPRO Black Panthers. But, you know, we started researching the Maoist Revolutionary Union. We've got thousands of pages. I think we might even have 10,000 pages uh, on that group. And, and that says to me that, you know, Progressive Labor Party, there's got to be thousands and thousands of pages. This is massive. And the way something like the ad hoc committee reaches into it is, uh, you know, look, it's cause for speculation. But we do know, you know, you know we discover my collaborator, Connor Gallagher, he's actually uh, working in, in China. So he's he's not always available for interviewing. But, you know, he got the notion to go look through the papers of Morris Childs. Morris Childs, again, is this secretary of state for the Communist Party and an FBI informant to see if we could find anything about the ad hoc committee uh, in his his personal papers. And sure enough, he's got a full catalog of all the papers. And the suspicion is that he helped write the later versions. The later versions are very nuanced in Marxism, Leninism, especially in in what Marx has called the black nationalist question. And they do these flips in, in, in their political stand. You know, one year they say this and two years later they say the exact opposite and nobody even um, even picks up on it because technology as such is how do you compare all these documents unless sure. you're you know, keeping a file and they're di- distributed secretly. So it's, it's hard to keep that file, but. And it's, um, it's only because they had, uh, you know, Marxists or, or former Marxists, uh, on staff as informants that they were able to imitate the language of, of like, I mean, it, it looked, it looks legit. That's how, that's how communists talked back then. When you, read these, uh, you know, like these ad hoc kind of newsletters, um, you know, they were speaking to like a kind of legitimate factionalism that already existed on some level among the left. You had people, um, you know, supporters of the Soviet Union um, suddenly in uh, contention with people who were moving more towards Mao. And it was very, you know, on a case by case basis, it's very believable. But like you said, it was kind of inconsistent. If you were able to see all of them at once, it starts to look a little shaky. Um, like, for example, they switched positions entirely on black nationalism, correct? Yeah, they did. And at a point when it was becoming very volatile, I mean, you know, we doc, I mean, one of the most extensive parts of the book deals with this. Uh, effort by a number of organizations, the Black Workers Congress, Young Lords Party, which had become something called the Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers Organization, the Revolutionary Union, and I wore Kuhn, uh, along with this group, the October League and the Guardian, they were all trying to come together to form, you know, a new communist party, you know, that was pro-Chinese and pro-Mao. And uh, the ad hoc committee took the position that the time was not right that black workers should lead black workers, Puerto Rican workers should lead Puerto Rican workers. So they took that position in a letter uh, to this newspaper, The Guardian. The head of the Revolutionary Union delegation um, in the committee that was trying to get this merger was this guy named Don Wright. Don Wright had joined the RU, and his political bona fides were 
he had been in the ad hoc committee and he put out the same position. It was the opposite position of what his organization was actually, you know, telling him to put. And the end result is the union never came together. You know, the revolutionary union went on and formed a party by itself, but they totally, you know, the whole thing was derailed. And it seems like the ad hoc committee and Don Wright played a significant role. I mean, look, these were big questions and they are contentious and complicated questions. And we see that today. So that was definitely an effect, but there was something secret going on in the background. Um, I did want to say one thing, though, because, you know, your characterization of the sophistication of these documents, it's really important. I mean, there's two things. Actually, I, I talked recently in, in one city and somebody came up to me after and said, well, you know, it's really interesting what you're saying, Aaron, but it's also depressing. <laughs> it, you know, I mean, you know, sure, it is. But but then, you know, and, and, and that kind of counterposes, I, I know from having been a Maoist, we, we proclaim this thing that line is key. And I think there was a spoken and unspoken notion that uh, somebody in the FBI or a police agent could never be that sophisticated politically. You know, that, you know, if you really believe this stuff, um, it was hard to speak it, you know, uh, unless you were really steeped in it. But I, I think our book proves that, look, if you just study the documents and the literature, you can get pretty good at it. You know, and there's no mysticism to it. It's, it's kind of like learning algebra in a sense. Sure. Um, but and, but and getting back to the point of being depressing is, is no, it's a lot better to know what's going on instead of just kind of being victimized by it. And, and I think that's one of the things, you know, this book and our first book is trying to do is, you know, to, to kind of let people know that, that there is a, a methodology behind it and it, it works a certain way and you know it's worth understanding that and people can do with that what they what they want but uh, if you do that it's it's not as depressing you know it does mean that the terrain is a little bit more you know a good deal more dangerous than maybe a thought but at least you know what the terrain is right i mean i think uh, it is a little depressing to me it's more like mystifying um because from the very first um, ad hoc committee bulletin, uh, it, it, it was immediately disruptive. I mean, like people started, you know, being ejected from the party and people were put under scrutiny. People quit out of solidarity with other people being ejected, etc. Uh, people defected to other organizations. And it didn't seem like anyone thought, hey, maybe someone is fucking with us. And I, yeah, I, yeah, I Boy, that's, to a, that's a good way to put it. It's nobody asked kind of fundamental one on one questions. Who are these people? Show your face. Oh, no, they thought maybe it was Trotskyist, which is, you know, fair, fair guess. But they, they, uh, they seem to not be too concerned with how, or maybe they were, I don't know, but they were just so easily manipulated into chaos. It's, very surprising. And I think the book starts out with um, uh, an anecdote about a, a, an informant that even fooled Lenin. And it just yeah, makes you wonder, yeah, exactly. how how does this stuff get past people? Well, you know, that's the thing. I was thinking about this before we got on the phone, too, is uh, is the, there's a legacy that gets passed down and uh, people are hesitant to confront their past. And as a result, they're going to be victimized by it again. You know, so Lenin had this guy, Roman Malinovsky, who got on the 
elevated to the Soviet, the Bolshevik Central Committee. He was one of three people charged with ferreting out spies, and he was a czarist agent, and he ended up getting exposed. I was just reading, too, around the same time, this group, the Socialist Revolutionaries uh, in Russia, you know, the they had a uh, committee that undertook political violence, um, and this guy Yevno Azev was one of the three leading people on this committee, and he too was a czarist agent. So, you know, there's these people who get elevated historically to do damage, and then it gets exposed, and then nobody wants to talk about it because it doesn't quite fit into the political narrative. I mean, Lenin famously in a left-wing communism and infantile disorder, says, well, you know, this guy Malinowski was a spy. On the one hand, he sent thousands of good comrades to prison or even death. On the other hand, because he allowed us to operate legally and distribute Pravda, you know, he recruited tens of thousands of Bolsheviks. And, and it's kind of a yeah. rationale. I mean, the logic is, if you strip away the logic is, oh, well, geez, maybe we ought to have a lot more informants at the top of the organization. We yeah. See state power. He does not want to admit that he got tricked and that it was bad. And yeah, then I mean, privately, it, he admitted on a that. personal level, Lenin did confront it. But yeah. I, I think for political expediency, they passed down, well, you know, it's all good. Um, and it's not all good. And, and, and a lot of the left, kind of have this, to this day, this view that Malinovsky was not a problem. I mean, Malinovsky sent Stalin to Siberia. That's got of had an effect on Stalin, right? Right. And how he viewed people and stuff. But that that's another book to read, I guess, or write. Right. Well, uh, Lenin privately said, I, I never could see through that scoundrel Malinovsky. But I think there's <laughs> yeah. just some, there's some amount of shame to have, to, you know, having been a mark um, but it's, you know, this stuff is very real and it's been historically very consistent and it does seem like you have to keep your eyes open about it. Um, at the, in the intro to the book, actually, uh, you have this, uh, final paragraph that says, as for the groups that were FBI targets, their response is instructive beyond the combination of disbelief, denial, and even acceptance of the Bureau's assaults, was a mistaken view that a correct political line, the supremacy of their ideals, was sufficient to withstand the attacks, if not in the short run, then in the long run. How that worked in practice is a lesson in repeated failure, one with historic precedent. There's just yeah, like no way to avoid it's a hard, One of those hard truths. You know? yeah. it's, uh, and, and the thing is, is you can either confront it or you can continue on. I, you know, we talk about Richard Aoki, who was this FBI informant for from like the late 50s up into the mid 70s. And, you know, when it was exposed, he was an informant and a couple thousand pages of his file came out. The first reaction was, was no, it's not true. And then the second reaction was, Oh, well, even if he was an informant, uh, he was a piss poor one because he did more good than bad. But, you know, if you actually look at his record, his record is he actually did more bad than good. Um, you know, the, the statement doesn't stand on its own. And, and, you know, some of the people defending him actually deserve the accolades that he had. You know, these were folks who had fought, fought for Asian American studies and social justice for, for you know, Asian people. Uh, they're defending this guy who had 
sold out or you know betrayed those interests at, at every point. It, I mean, it's a hard thing to confront, and you're dealing with people who, you know, you're dealing with complicated people who are really sneaky. And you know, of course, they've got the advantage; they know they're lying. You don't. You know, it's it's on right. you to to sort out truth from fact without making yourself crazy or torpedoing torpedoing your political agenda in the process. But, you know, yeah, they, they've got an advantage. Uh, but the, the bigger sin, to use that religious term, is is even after the fact, not excavating that ground. I think that's, I mean, I, I can make quite a few allowances for for what people, you know, were subject to. But what doesn't make sense to me or what, what I don't think I, I would accept is, is that people have just let it go and acted like it never happened or let's not re-examine it. I don't think that's helpful. Sure, sure. Especially moving forward, we've seen that this stuff is effective. And if we don't learn from it, it's going to happen again. But I, I remember the Aoki thing very vividly because um, I remember a, a Japanese-American uh, friend of mine just did not believe it. And then I think a Times article in like 2015 came out and she was like crying because this was a, a very important, you know, figure to her. And it's it's a really ugly truth um, to, to have to confront. But at the same time, like if you're not being infiltrated, it's probably because you're not a threat. And if you are a threat, you're probably being infiltrated. Oh, geez. Well, that's that's a good point. Yeah, it's a badge of honor. I mean, don't get crazy about it. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, results matter a little more than your infiltration level. Um, <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's a really wonderful book. Um, I recommend it entirely. Um, I, I think one of the most fascinating things about it is that you have all of these amazing documents at the end that people just get to pour through. And the utter just scope and pervasiveness of these programs is completely shocking. I'm relatively interested in this stuff, and I had absolutely no idea to the extent uh, to which the left has been infiltrated by the FBI and and, and various uh, record tendencies, shall we say. All right, Aaron J. Leonard, thank you so much for coming on. You can find A Threat of the First Magnitude out from Repeater Books in the show description. Uh, go out and buy it. It's really fascinating. Thank you for having me. It's, it's a lot of fun. Or, uh, fun is probably not the right word. <laughs> it's okay. We look, can admit I that it's fun. I always look forward to the opportunity to, to get into this with folks. So thank you. All right. Thank you.